0: I have
1: Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helna O'Hara. I'm a film critic and author of the book of the same name as this podcast. And today we're going to be looking at the Me Too movement. Now, the use of this phrase and the hashtag Me Too as a rallying cry for victims of assault and abuse dates back to 2006, when it was first used by activist Tarana Burke on the social media platform MySpace to promote empowerment through empathy among women of colour who had been sexually abused and often ignored or disbelieved by the system. But despite Burke's best efforts to bring attention to the hashtag, it wasn't until 2017 that it became the subject of headlines around the world. On the 5th of October of that year, New York Times journalists Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey published an exposé of the abuse and assaults alleged against film producer Harvey Weinstein. Five days later, NBC News correspondent Ronan Farrow published further allegations against Weinstein in The New Yorker, and a flood of articles from both sets of journalists followed, adding in more and more revelations and more and more accusations, many of them from very big names. Celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd spoke out. Angelina Jolie was among those who mentioned that Weinstein had made a pass against her. And on the 15th of October, actress Alyssa Milano encouraged women who had been sexually abused or assaulted to use the hashtag MeToo in their social media posts to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. People could no longer ignore the horrific abuse that women were suffering and Tarana hashtag at last got the attention it had always deserved. In the last four years since then, more and more women have spoken out against their abusers, inside the film industry, but also around the world in virtually every industry and circumstance going. Weinstein himself was sentenced to 23 years in prison for various sexual assault-related crimes. So to find out more about the impact of the Me Too movement in Hollywood and on society at large, I spoke to television producer and investigative reporter Lucy Osborne, who's worked for media outlets including the BBC, The Guardian, ITN and Channel 4. I also spoke to actress and best Pick podcast co-host Jessica Regan about her experience of working in the entertainment industry during the age of Me Too. But first, I spoke to Shelley Stamp, Professor of Film and Digital Media at University of California, Santa Cruz. I asked her just how far back this issue goes in Hollywood history.
0: The earliest instance that I have found of reports in trade journals about sexual abuse and sexual assault right in the film industry is 1913 right that's how far back this goes right
1: i mean literally that, that's the first year of hollywood filmmaking right pretty much
0: exactly exactly wow. and and there's an account of you know uh, a director who is demanding sexual favors in return for casting and opportunities right exactly the, the thing we know about. So this has a long, 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 long history in Hollywood, and the casting couch euphemism is is such a horrible euphemism because it's covering over sexual assault. Um, it's such a horrible euphemism, but it's ingrained in the industry, or it has been ingrained in the industry. And I'm very hopeful that with the Me Too movement and with the prosecution of Harvey Weinstein. That things are going to change. And I think that the the reporting that Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey did for the New York Times and that Ronan Farrow did, that reporting is really, really important. It takes it out of the anecdotal, it takes it out of the individual story and says, this is a widespread problem in the industry now. You know, it's not a, a casting couch thing that we joke about from the 30s and 40s. It's a widespread problem now. And so I am hopeful that the sort of public discussion about this and the reporting and the actual prosecution of individuals is going to perhaps change this
1: long-standing culture. Me too. I mean, I I think it, me too. <laughs> Wrong choice of words, but <laughs> um, but it does feel like something fundamentally shifted in people's perception. Like like it was the subject of jokes. I mean, what was it? Twenty twelve. Seth MacFarlane was joking about it at the Oscars. Yes, and. You know and it was and it was still a joke in very recent memory, and suddenly people were like, "Wait, this is
0: awful. this is horrific and, and I think the other thing that's changed too is that the actresses that are speaking out help us to understand the connection between that behind the scenes behavior and what we see on screen so you know Selma Hayek talking about Weinstein you know insisting on her appearing nude in a in a scene with another woman and they're punishing her for not uh, having sex with him. I mean, it's all related. We need to look at the on screen violence in relation to what's happening behind the scenes. And same with. So it's, it's, it's incredibly important for, for film in particular to think about this Me Too m- moment because it's not just a few bad apples, it's not just unfortunate behavior behind the scenes. There's a connection between the representation of women on screen, the representation of female sexuality, of violence against women to what's going on behind screen.
1: Now, one of the key components to the success of the Me Too movement was thorough investigative reporting. I asked Lucy Osborne about that. She reported on the allegations against British actor Noel Clark for The Guardian, alongside colleague Siren Cale. But she also worked as a producer on the BBC Panorama documentary Weinstein, The Inside Story. So I asked Lucy about the challenges that a journalist faces when doing this kind of reporting and the pressure to get it right.
2: It's always the, the, the key thing is, is is getting women to go on the record about, about what happened to them, which is really often quite difficult because particularly when the story hasn't broken yet. I mean with, with Weinstein, the the story had broken when I when I worked on it for for Panorama. So it was it was slightly easier in the, the you know, obviously all these top actresses had already come out and, and other actresses, so it was it was a bit easier for them to to start um talking about it publicly. But since then, for example, with the noel Clark story, obviously about the film producer and director an actor in the u k the allegations had never come out had no allegations had come out about him before, so it was a case of speaking to women and gathering enough evidence for it for it to be publishable so that's the biggest challenge because particularly you know with Hollywood and the t v and film industry it's it's very public and so for women to be putting their name out there like that, you know, it's that they're forever going to be associated with the person that they're accusing. So it's a really big ask. And it's the reason that a lot of these stories don't get reported. And obviously, it's a whole other issue internally is that, you know, that, that often when I mean, we found with with the Noel Clark story that women just didn't have an avenue to to report that that was the problem, they, they felt that going to reporters was the only way that they were going to get this out there. And that there wasn't anything within the within the workplace or anything within the kind of film industry structures that allowed them to go anywhere else. So in this case, yeah, it was it was kind of a last resort, I think, for them. And I think seeing Noel Clark get this prestigious award from BAFTA, it was kind of this trigger, really, that it was sort of they, they sort of reached that point where it was okay, this is what we need to do now. And they kind of all, you know, at the beginning, not many of them wanted to to go on the record and they spoke to us strictly off the record you know it was very much uh we never want to come forward about this we don't want our names associated with it but they it was a case of yeah the more sort of coming together and deciding okay we're going to do this we're going to do this together and and sort of support each other through this and that was how how we sort of got to that point of getting to 20 women
1: i feel like you've mentioned some of the the, the problems particular to the film industry there. But I do want to kind of ask about that a little bit more because, first of all, it's a very small industry. Everybody kind of knows everybody else and your career really can be killed, I think, by a word from the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong place. And secondly, as you, as you alluded to, and I'd, I'd just like to ask a bit more about that, there is no formal structure. There is no HR department for the film industry as a whole. Every production seems to be a sort of ad hoc Group of people, and then they dis- dis- disperse and come back together again. You know, so does that create a particular problem for the film industry?
2: I think definitely, yeah. So I think, I mean, when we were doing the Weinstein reporting, it was it really struck me how you've literally got the guys at the top, or, or men and women at the top, often the men at the top, and then you have the A list actresses and actors, but then you have that. There's this, this kind of like there's no middle ground. There's you just sort of have. Then you have these, you know, often freelance, you know, whether it's actresses or makeup artists or whatever, that are, you know, working particularly with the actresses, you know, they're often working second jobs and, and trying to make ends meet. And then suddenly they get this invite to to meet with the director or the the big boss. So in this case, Weinstein, Um and there, you know, there's, there's no, if something happens, you know, who, who, who could they go to? Who can they go to? How can they complain when the only person, their only point of contact is, is Weinstein himself, or perhaps a, a really junior assistant who has helped arrange the, um, the meeting. So it, it really is no wonder that they feel unable to talk about it. It's the same thing with each of the sort of Me Too cases that have emerged since Weinstein. And it is specific to this industry, definitely. And with the Noel Clark allegations, again, it, it was often women just starting out in their careers and, and they were really happy to have that first opportunity with with clark and they just felt that that there wasn't that hr department there wasn't somewhere that they could report it i mean clark denied that you know he said that there 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 often are those departments and other people on sets that can things can be reported to but it's just that that power imbalance it's you know it's it's this it's that you know it's so much easier for there to be an abuse of power when there's such a stark difference and not much in between
1: yeah and it feels like that's one of the things that the kind of the critics of the movement have I think, deliberately misunderstood that there there are real life consequences to potentially going on the record with this stuff, that it really can be as stark as a choice between making an allegation and having a career. Because we, we have seen that, haven't we, in some of the women who have come forward in the past?
2: it's really sad I mean there's the there's so many women who um I've spoken to whether it's whatever the story is but but to be honest particularly with with the, the tv and film industry where they've literally felt that they have to that the only way that they can get out of it is by leaving the industry and this is an industry that they love that they've worked really hard for yeah it's, it, I mean it's such a loss as well it's such a I think people you know forget the bigger picture of it is that there's all these women leaving this industry these industries these creative industries I mean the the loss of that the loss of the you know female talent and creativity that's caused by that I think because there have been more of these these stories coming out in the press, I think people forget, people can forget how difficult it is to come forward and how much of a big step that is. For whoever you are, whether you're a person in the public eye or not, to have your name associated with that and have to go through the sort of gruelling process as well of of speaking to reporters who are fact checking and asking to speak to every person that you've told Digging around, if, you know, asking them for their phone records so that you can see what, they've, what exchanges they might have had with that person. You know, it's, it's really not a nice thing to do and it's not something anyone would take lightly to come forward in that way.
0: In my career, what I've always tried my best to do, whether on television or through film, is to say something about how men and women really behave, to say how we experience shame, how we love and how we rage, how we fail, how we retreat, persevere, and how we overcome. I've interviewed and portrayed people who've withstood some of the ugliest things life can throw at you, but the one quality all of them seem to share is an ability to maintain hope for a brighter morning, even during our darkest nights. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, Me Too, again.
1: So that was a clip of Oprah Winfrey's acceptance speech from the Golden Globes in 2018, where she received the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement. Although things are beginning to change and people are speaking out about their experience, for a weirdly long time we just accepted, as a culture, that this kind of abuse was very nearly normal. I asked actress Jessica Regan why she thinks men like Harvey Weinstein were allowed to get away with it for so long.
3: We were groomed as a culture to accept it. We were groomed by the films we watched. We were groomed by the tropes we saw. We were also groomed to um, not anger men, not, not not embarrass them, not humiliate them. And we were also groomed to, to see it as some twisted flattery and inevitable and to accept it as inevitable. And none of those things are true. And it was a weird thing when Me Too happened because I do remember a very good friend of mine who's who's a very successful actor saying to me and we had exactly the same experience it all kicked off and we were like god I'm so lucky you know nothing's ever happened to me and then we were like hang on about a hundred things have happened to me like when you think about it like microaggressions small incidences not even small incidences things that we passed off as horseplay or had almost kind of blocked out going hang on That person gave me a mouth kiss as I left the room. Like, what? You know, stuff that we were told we should be flattered by, you know? Movie star pinches your arse. Like, cool, I guess. Is it? I don't know. Didn't feel great. Don't think he knows my name. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I think we have been groomed. I think we've, it's interesting the content we've consumed. Wherever people stand on the Woody Allen situation, I do think so much of his content is just like this image of a much older person being with someone who's who looks extremely young and even just like a- actresses is things for consumption like oh gee why do you want me you know the, that that trope as well yeah we we were completely we we drank the kool-aid like it was it was almost cult-like in in how much we accepted this you know seth mfarlane out here literally openly stating at the oscar nomination announcements that harvey weinstein is a predator and everyone's like oh my god it's so bad seth you know And again, I think that unconscious thing as well. I think so many men were like, I, I, I'm not, not me. I'd never. And it's like, well, what about that time? What about, did you, did you stick up for someone when someone worse was on set? I think it's, it's really shameful how, and it speaks a lot to, to where we saw ourselves and our position and how much power we had. But like when you've Gwyneth Paltrow locking herself in a bathroom and Daryl Hannah barricading herself in, in a hotel room you're like those women those a-listers are literally fearing like because there's there's literally a monster on the other side of the door like that's crazy that's crazy but we're having conversations now that that we never had we have a vocabulary and we have twitter which i won't hesitate to use
1: If there's one TV show that is going to make the whole of the UK feel that little bit better about what's going on in the world at the moment, then it has to be the Great British Bake Off, which has returned to our screens. And if you want to really understand why the dough didn't rise or why the cookie crumbled, then you'll want to hear the Bake Down podcast, where my two co-hosts, former contestants Jane Beadle and Howard Middleton, who have been there and
0: done it in the most famous baking tent of all, dissect each and every episode of the Search the Bake Down wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be sure to find us.
1: Now, for many decades, the concept of a casting couch has been a part of Hollywood culture. And it's only now, with the Me Too movement, that we're beginning to really recognise the dark truth behind it. The phrase originated on early 20th century Broadway, where the demand for sexual favours from chorus girls by producers was so common, it just became kind of background noise in that industry. And it very swiftly became the same way in Hollywood – There were jokes about it, it was an open secret, but the victims rarely spoke up. Marilyn Monroe, for example, was widely rumoured to have used the casting couch in her ascent to fame, and fiercely denied it for her entire life. Dorothy Dandridge, however, was an exception, offering copious details about her encounter with the co-founder of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn, during which he offered her work at his studio in exchange for sex. However, she made sure that that account was only published after her death. I asked Lucy about her perspective on this concept of the casting couch.
2: It's just been like a joke. It's kind of been, you know, ridiculed, and it's always the women that are the actresses that are ridiculed and they're slut shamed or having their talent or their qualifications questioned. You know, that it's they, they don't deserve to get the job. So yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to think that yeah, only four years ago those kind of tropes were just, were not being questioned. They were, they were just part of our culture. You know, they were part of just kind of often using comedy sketches and TV porn just as a a kind of accepted part of our culture. So, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, yeah, it's mad to think that in 2017, these were things that were just accepted. Yeah, it is great to see that, that things like that are finally being kind of unpicked and Questioned a bit more.
1: So, what was it in 2017 that was different? Was it social media? Was it just the sheer amount of reporting that those reporters did, like what and yourself as well? Well, you know, what was it that that changed this?
2: I think it was a really unique time. Donald Trump had just become president, a man who has boasted publicly is is recorded boasting about sexually assaulting women I feel that, that there was a sort of collective anger among women it was sort of like that this that this man could could reach this this position and actually when when we were doing the, the Weinstein documentary what we actually asked all of the women who we spoke to for that we spoke to quite a few of of the Weinstein survivors and they I think nearly all of them said that that like mentioned Trump and I think it was a kind of key just sort of push them, you know. They they'd never really thought about coming forward about it before, because like we've discussed, you know, there's just, there just wasn't really an avenue for them. I think it was just it was. It, I think it was a sort of cult, unique cultural moment. But I mean, of course, the the work that the the three journalists that that on the the Weinstein uh, case. I mean, they, they, they did incredible work over a long period of time to to convince people enough people to come forward. But I think, yeah, I think I, I do think that Trump had a had a key role in that <laughs> and ironically he actually wasn't held accountable for <laughs> for the um allegations of sexual abuse against him i think that we re- part of the reason from a, i guess slightly skeptical point of view is and the, one of the reasons that the weinstein story really resonated you know i think hearing celebrities and hearing high profile women talk about it does you know it, it does change something and, and the sheer volume of women that had come forward about it I think people really sort of yeah took, took note for the first time
1: yeah that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about actually because it did feel like that gave it an extra quality because I think a lot of the women who are targeted by these men are targeted precisely because of that power differential you mentioned they are younger in their careers they're you know they're not rich they're not connected they need this job or whatever it is so to have like Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie and, you know, Lupita Nyong'o and all these people speaking out, you, you were forced to say well, there is no reason for these women to speak up. There is no, you know, quote-unquote financial gain here. They are just speaking their truth, right?
2: Yeah, I think... And I, I think people forget, what you know, why didn't people have said, oh, well, why didn't these women come forward sooner? That they're, they're, you know, well-established in their careers, they're earning enough money. It's not like... It's going to impact them, but I, I think it. You know, these are women who have like who've had to build up their reputations. They, they, Weinstein. I think people forget how how powerful he was, and men like him are. You know, they're not only responsible for choosing who's going to be in his films, but he he's also very well connected with all these other <laughs> individuals in the in the industry who are also very powerful. So it's a very courageous thing to do, and also it's your name forever associated with with that person um, particularly if you're the only one so I think yeah those those first women like Gwyneth Paltrow I think and Ashley Jard who were the sort of first ones to speak I think you know it's really courageous that they did that because they didn't necessarily know that there was going to be this whole wave of of other actresses that were going to follow them.
1: I wanted to ask as well about the the effects of you know the legal industry on this because this is something I talked about in the in the book but non-disclosure agreements payouts and so on you know Again, this gets, something is used to beat women over the head, particularly in Weinstein's case, that, oh, they're just after money, they're just after, you know, a financial arrangement. But realistically, certainly up until Me Too, was there any other decent outcome possible?
2: The two female lawyers in in the states who represented some of the women, some of the Weinstein survivors, and even even with them, you know, they were using, they were persuading women to sign non disclosure agreements with Weinstein. So they, for years, were some might say, you know, facilitating. Weinstein to carry on with his abuse because they were they weren't encouraging women to take other forms of action against him and it was just so and it's just so I mean, not not just in America you know it's it's a NDAs are a huge problem here as well um in in many industries and it's I think it's it's interesting that I think obviously it's fantastic that, that Weinstein is behind bars but he's one person and it's that that whole system that protected him is very much still in place, you know, whether that's the kind of whole system that Hollywood is based on, the, the things that, that protect protected him the people that protected him but but also you know it's yeah it's for example Zelda Perkins a British uh, Weinstein survivor she's been campaigning for the last four years to try and bring in new legislation in the UK that will help manage the way NDAs are used in the workplace and and she's still not got you know I don't think as far as I'm aware she's she's still doing that you know four years on which I think just shows that, yeah, there's there's still a lot of work to do. And it's great that in this case, Weinstein was held to account, but it doesn't mean that that's going to be the case going forward. Because as I said, the the, the systems that enabled him are still very much there. How do you speak out? I mean, it's there's no, you know, you can't, some things have been reported by, you know, by newspapers, but it's, that's not always possible. There's not always enough evidence or enough people to speak out about something you know coming to journalists isn't the solution if there's not the means to report within their workplace then there's not really anything else they can do unless they want to be really ballsy and go to the top and complain and make a fuss which you can't blame people for not wanting to do so when
1: i spoke to jessica reagan i asked what she thinks needs to change to make sure that sexual abuse in the film industry really does become a thing of the past
3: the way to really tackle it is to have more women on set, is to have greater diversity on set, more non-binary people on set. You need more diversity in, in these spaces of, of all kinds, of every kind. And everyone wins from a cold, hard point of, um, commerce. You will have better, more productive environments. The new stick now to beat us with is go woke, go broke. And again, that's bullshit. That's just another thing they're saying. Oh, well, these films lose money. No, they don't. It's not true. People, (laughs) the amount of money that female directors have made for Hollywood, Nancy Mayer's we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions and it, it leads to better work practices all around. It leads to a real a kind of a, a relaxation and a, and a just a, a calmness. It, 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 tr- it truly does. That's been my experience. It's anecdotal. I get it. But I do think everyone wins. Often the, the, the solution is the, is, the, is the good thing. That's what people don't get. The solution. It's, it's there. It's the good thing. Lots of the films we covered on, on Best Pick were some of the happiest sets going, and they won Best Picture. Lawrence of Arabia, everyone had a wonderful time. There's no excuse. If you're in that desert and you can be gracious gentlemen, no one has any excuse.
1: So things are beginning to change, but I wanted to know from Lucy Osborne whether she thinks that things have changed enough and what we still need to do to make the film industry a safer place for women, and indeed for everyone.
2: It is easy to forget that because there was such an emphasis with the Me Too movement on Hollywood and and the film industry, whether it's producers or directors or whoever you know came after him. That I, th- I think it's yeah, it's easy to forget that there's still people that are behaving like this um, in, in kind of in plain sight. Yeah, I think I mean with, with with the Noel Clark reporting, you know, we, we quickly heard from you know so many women with allegations or witnesses with allegations against Noel Clark, and, and some of those were from post post me too, you know after 2017 so they were still happening after that and um, and so it was it was a it was a wake-up call really just that this is this is still going on the reaction to the the first stories that we wrote there was this we were really surprised that you know how much people within the british tv and film industry felt that this had ne- that no one had ever looked into the british um, industry that this is that the, the, they never really had its me too moment like hollywood had. So there was yeah re- this real outpouring of like this needs to happen. You know, obviously, just there's still so much that needs to be done. I think that there's definitely been some really great things have started to happen um, with, within you know certain production companies and things. I think people are taking it more seriously than before. But uh, you know, I think there needs to be real kind of systemic change if, if anything's going to really. If it's going to be real lasting change and, and protection for, for women in the workplace, you know, there needs to be a realistic system in which they can report abuse anonymously and safely. And until that happens, I don't see how they're going to be better protected. And like we've, like we've talked about, this, it's still very much generally producers, directors at the top. And then there's the and it's, a, it's a real freelance culture as well, the TV and film industry. So it's you don't have much you don't have much power. A lot, a lot, systemically needs to change for this to really stop being a problem. But, but I think we're definitely going in the right direction.
1: So look, there's still a long way to go. The problem is this enormous power differential between a wannabe star, a wannabe producer, a wannabe anybody, all these young women going into the film industry or any other similar business with high, high hopes, high ambitions and enormous amounts of dedication and hope and drive. And sometimes, they run straight into a brick wall made of men who just want to exploit them for all they can get. What we have to really do to change the system permanently is to unbalance that imbalance of power. We need to give the people at the bottom of the chain more power, whether that's through ways of making complaints that will be taken seriously, whether it's just the power to fight back and some kind of system of protection that ensures they cannot physically be exploited. But we also need to take away a little bit of the power that the people at the top have. We need to make them accountable to someone, because if not, they're always going to act, some of them, not all, but some of them are always going to act on their basest impulses. The fact that Harvey Weinstein was as powerful and as successful and as influential as he was is what allowed him to get away with doing this for decades. Everyone knew he was at least a bully. Everyone knew he was not a nice guy. People maybe didn't realise the full extent of what was going on. But we should have been in a position to rein him in just on the basis of what we did know. And that wasn't the case. So things definitely still need to change. But what's important about the Me Too movement as a whole and as a phenomenon is it has opened us up as a society and made us realize that something was deeply, deeply sick and that we were accepting things that no one should ever have to accept. The casting couch is not inevitable, it is not a subject of jokes it is not fit for purpose. <laughs> it is it is obscene, it is grotesque, and it is unjust. It also doesn't, you know, help anyone except abusers. So we need to get past this. We need to move on, and we need to figure out a way to protect those who are vulnerable and, frankly, rein in those who would use their power to harm others. We just haven't quite figured out how to entirely do that yet. But The fact that we're talking about it is genuinely a first step and now we just need to keep talking about it and make sure that this never happens to anyone else. So thank you so much to my guests today, to Shelley Stamp, to Jessica Regan and to Lucy Osborne. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work. And we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before you go, here's one of our guests' recommendation of an underrated female-directed film that you may have missed. And of course, if you'd like to hear Jessica's recommendation, that's on our episode on awards. And Shelley's is on our episode on the studio era. But today, here's Lucy with her recommendation.
2: So I'd, I'd really recommend um, it's a documentary called On the Record. It was made um, in 2020, directed by it's directed by a man and a woman, um, so Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, and a, a female team of producers. And it's about the sexual abuse allegations against Russell Simmons. It's really, it really sort of cleverly lifts the lid on the mistreatment of women in the hip hop industry. So you can find a
1: list of all the films recommended by our guests in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold here in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible and the book will be released there in December. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag WomenVersusHollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers, Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer, Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. And thanks for listening. I will see you next time.